Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's do some tech talk here because there's a lot of earnings coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, we got the Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Technology team with us, Mandeep Singh here in uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Anurag Rana uh, phoning in from God knows where. But Anurag, let's start with you. Uh, you know, I get it that digital ad spending slowing. We'll go over that with Mandeep. But Microsoft a little bit weaker in their guidance than I would have anticipated. And I think the street as well, judging by the stock. What did you take away? We had anticipated. We were looking for a slowdown uh, somewhere from, you know, 16% constant currency growth rate to, let's say, around 10 to 12%. And these guys said they were going to be somewhere around 8 or 9. Um, that was a bit of a surprise to us. Now, with this, you know, in our view, uh, tells that enterprise spending is starting to hold back. Now, this does not mean, uh, you know, this is not a good sign for all enterprise companies, both in the software world as the services world. And so, Mandeep, let's also tie in what we heard from Alphabet. If I look at the shares right now, I see them down about 7%. They've clawed back a lot of their losses, but still a 7% loss on the day. What was the biggest headline there to explain this market reaction? I mean, across the board, they validated the weakness on the ad side, what we heard from Snapchat, uh, Alphabet said, search ad revenue growth is slowing, YouTube is slowing, and look, I mean, except for search, none of their other segments make any money. So if you're an investor in this stock and you're looking at this, you know, uh, management saying search is slowing, but we are growing our employee headcount by 25%, you're questioning, you know, uh, what is it that they are hiring all these people for, and when will that translate into profits? And I think that is uh, what they need to address. So, Anurag, there's no reason for anybody to think that big tech spending is anything but a short-term cyclical pullback right here. Because, I mean, this is the only reason we talk to people like you and Mandeep is because your businesses that you cover continue to grow all the time. That's still the case, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I'll, I'll give you a very easy example. You know, cloud is something that everybody's talking about today, slow down in that. I'm, you know, if you go back and look at during the pandemic, we saw a similar slowdown for four quarters in a row. And then the year after, growth rates improved, which is very unusual for these large businesses. And we expect a similar trend here. The end markets are so large. We are, we are still in very, very early innings in this case. So, even if we see slowdowns in the next two to three quarters, we expect a massive bounce back in the year after that. And that, that's a true tech analyst right there. A massive they, bounce a back. A massive bounce back. Yeah. It's, not, it's not just Dan Ives, all these tech analysts, massive bounce they back. They can see the future. They can, I know. Yeah, and it involves technology. It makes sense to me. But yep. Mandeep, I want to go back to the social media names because we still have two biggies left. We got Twitter, we got Meta, both interesting for their own reasons. But given what we saw from Snap, like you mentioned, given what we saw from Alphabet most recently, 
Are we just going to be talking about ad spending? Is it going to be another gloomy two reports to sit through? I think so. But look, I mean, to Anurag's point, uh, you know, there is a cyclical element even in ads. Things will come back. The growth rates will improve. The problem for Meta specifically is, uh, you know, there is a question mark around how sustainable their business model is, given what has transpired with Apple's privacy changes and, you know, TikTok taking share. So they have a real challenge ahead of them. I'm not worried about search. Search will come back. YouTube growth rates will be uh, 25, 30% after this downturn. So uh, there is a lot of cyclical element within ads, but then I, I think the key to watch out for is what happens to Meta. All right, we actually had an IPO today, which is a rarity in 2022. Uh, Mobileye IPO'd at $21 uh, per share, uh, giving it an $860 million IPO. Uh, Bloomberg News is reporting that the Mobileye has not traded yet, but it's indicated to open at 25. Mandeep, what is Mobileye and what's the, the street call on this company? Well, Mobileye is uh, one of the segments within Intel, a company that they bought, and it focuses uh, predominantly around autonomous driving. They make chips and they have embedded software for driving, you know, level two, three, four uh, autonomous driving. So uh, very hot space given what we have seen from Tesla this year. And it made sense that Intel went ahead and, you know, IPO'd this company. Uh, the valuation clearly, I think, was pulled back from the initial discussions, and I think it was priced well enough that, you know, there was receptivity around uh, investors looking to get that initial uh, tranche of uh, the allocation. But, uh, look, I, I think it's still small when it comes to the capital raise here. $800 yep. million isn't yep. going to make a difference in Intel's fortunes. Uh, and uh, I think what Intel wants to do is really to showcase, you know, that they have exposure to a ton like uh, automotive sector, which yep. is a high growth sector within semis. All right, good stuff. I'm just, you know, as a former banker, I'm just happy that somebody got a deal done. Yeah. Uh, so let's see how this thing uh, trades today. All right, good stuff. Uh, talking technology, and there's no two better people to do it with than Anurag Rana and Mandeep Singh uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. They're tops, tops in the business. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We are in the thick of earnings season. We had the U.S. banks uh, last week, a lot of the European banks uh, reporting uh, numbers this week. And we want to talk Euro banks. We talked to John Tice. He's been covering the European banking sector for decades. He joins us. He's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Banks Analyst. So, John, thanks so much for, for joining us here. I want to talk with, about Deutsche Bank. It looks like, you know, their bigger business, which is their trading business, their FIC business, did actually pretty well. It was just kind of the bankers didn't have a lot of stuff to do during the quarter yeah hi paul um completely agree fake as expected has uh, beaten expectations pretty much across the board and actually if you look at barclays today up 63 percent in dollar terms so comfortably better than um deutsche but yes the advisory very disappointing and as you all know from your many years in the uh, investment banking world what pays bonuses it's the investment banking fee and i mean deutsche was down 85 percent so 
Um, the market's clearly looking at results through a bear market lens at the moment. Pretty difficult to catch a break, even if um, you look at Standard Chartered or SCB or something today, down 4 or 5%, even with massive revenue upgrades, purely because the market's worried about bad debt, it's worried about cost inflation. That 85% slump in investment banking revenue, I mean, just the worst of any of the large Wall Street firms. And John, how, what is the light at the end of the tunnel for Deutsche Bank? Because Paul and I were talking about how it used, I mean, it used, yep. it's a shadow of its former right. self. Uh, how does it get there? Or is that such a lofty goal at this point that it's not even on the radar? Well, I mean, I think that you're used to looking at American banks because think, think HSBC. Mm. HSBC was one of the sort of global leading banks. Yep. It's trading at a 20% discount to Europe now. It's trading on five times next year's earnings with massive revenue upgrades. Deutsche Bank's actually more expensive on PE. So when you say light at the end of the tunnel, clearly the one thing they've been waiting for is revenue to recover. And the NOI side of it, the fixed income side of it's improved. We know that fees, advisory origination is quite cyclical. Last year it was huge, this year it's down a lot. Um, but I guess the light at the end of the tunnel is getting through the next two to three years of economic pain in Germany, because don't forget, they've got a very large corporate loan book there as well. Yep. And Germany is at the epicenter of all the issues you've got with Ukraine, Russia, the gas issues. So we're still working our way through that. Yeah, John, I don't think, you know, our listeners here in the States have a full appreciation of how difficult the economic conditions are in much of Europe for a variety of reasons. So as you think, as you assess the European banks, how are you thinking about credit quality and write-offs? And I mean, how much of a headwind is that going to be, do you think? Well, I mean, the funny thing is it's not just about being a headwind at the moment because because banks have become so much more profitable purely yep. mechanically because rates have gone up. You've got the ECB and the Bank of England beginning to think, hang on a sec, you guys are now reporting double-digit ROEs simply on the back of us having to raise rates. So how do we crimp that? The banks are thinking, you know what, let's get ahead of the curve. Let's IFRS 9 is the accounting standard, a bit boring but quite important. They're taking more reserves and setting aside more provisions and they will do more in the fourth quarter to get ahead of this and also to damp reported profits. They don't want the regulators saying, right, we're going to put a cap on bonuses, we want to put a cap on capital oh, returns. Geez. So it's, it's an interesting trade-off, a bit like you saw um, the US banks being told, well, let, let's just calm down on the buybacks. Mm. The same is coming in Europe but, but more of a revenue question. Okay, a lot of gloom and doom in this conversation so far. Let's get some good news in here. If we look at Barclays' results, uh, on a dollar basis, a U.S. dollar basis, you did have FIC up 63%, equities fell 21%. But let's talk about FIC. That seems like an undeniable bright spot. It was, and um, Barclays has been investing very heavily, and obviously the dollar going the way it has has really flattered that. But um, I, I'd point to the share prices down. Um, and what did the core focus on? The core focused on the underlying outlook for credit um, and the UK and credit impairments and pointed to things like in the US, their credit card book, early warnings, so 30-day delinquencies are beginning to rise quite quickly. So the market is looking through all of the good news on um, the top line and focusing on are you doing a good enough job on costs, which Barclays is at the moment, and are you setting aside enough and are you being realistic about where the bad debt goes? So, yes, optically a good number, but when you look at what the market's focusing on, unfortunately, it looks straight through that. So, Jonathan, as, as we all globally deal with, you know, slowing economy, give us, let us step back, you know, and I'd love to get your view on kind of the structure of the European banking market. Will there be any change going forward? Any MNA? I know the cross-border MNA is, you know, very difficult to, to do. How do you think the European banking sector may evolve just structurally going forward? 
Well, consolidation cross-border is needed, but we're still a long way from that. I mean, if you think the most difficult thing the ECB is um, debating at the moment isn't the 75 basis point rate hike, which they almost certainly will do, it's what do you do with the €2 trillion Euros of loans that you made to the banks during the crisis? Because at the moment, they're now making money for the banks hand over fist. And if you're Italy... The Italian banking sector needs that. If you're Deutsche Bank or if you're BNP and you've got hundreds of billions of these loans, you're being given free money, but the ECB has to make a change. And so, as with the sovereign crisis, it's faced with the what do we do about Italy um, where there's still a lot of risk and stop the the largest banks just uh, being given free money. So I think consolidation cross-border is still a long way away. Um, the likes of BMP will be at the forefront of it, but it's still going to be more piecemeal. And I suspect we've got more domestic M&A over the next year or two, particularly as would you buy a bank right now, even on a depressed multiple, if you know that bad debt's going to go up and you don't know how much? The answer's no. And John, before we let you go, I am, I am curious to hear, in your opinion, how much reorganization we should expect to see in the next couple of months. I mean, to pick on Deutsche Bank a little bit more, uh, there's been a lot of shuffling around there. Have we seen most of it, or do you think uh, there's more to come as we head into these hard winter months? Well, I mean, difficult to say with Deutsche, but obviously we've got Credit Suisse in yep. the next day or two. I mean, that's the interesting oh, that's one. The, we get a the, reorg tomorrow, right? Oh, the, the, the question is... All right, well, be they, on standby for us tomorrow, John. <laughs> have, they, have they raised enough money to avoid a capital raise? Um, and the other issue they'll have is it's, it's one thing making cost promises, but in an environment where you've got so little visibility on revenue and clients are probably shying away, how do you present a credible plan? So Deutsche, where it was three years ago, Credit Suisse is at the moment. Uh, that's good stuff. I remember those Deutsche Bank days. And again, I, tomorrow, I guess, is when we get the plan from Credit Suisse. So there we go. again, another plan. Jonathan Tice, he's our senior banks analyst, covers all the European, a lot of the global uh, banks. He's uh, based in London, and he does a great job. So we always appreciate getting a few minutes of his time there at Bloomberg Intelligence. So again, th some pretty decent numbers from some of the European banks. But again, it all comes down, um, as it does for a lot of industries, particularly this quarter, on their guidance. And I think their guidance is cautious at best. I'm not even going to say cautiously optimistic. they got some challenging economic times ahead, particularly uh, in Europe, uh, exacerbated in large part by the war in Ukraine. So we'll stay on top of all those European banks. All right, Katie, are you a homeowner? I'm not. I have visions of being one. Visions of being one. one. Day. Okay. It's kind of tough out there, I think. Yeah. U.S. 30-year fixed mortgage rate top 7%. That's the highest since 2001. That's reported by Bloomberg. That's a far cry from, I think, Matt got his mortgage, you know, less than a year ago, mm -hmm. three and a quarter maybe. That sounds Isn't that amazing? Like a the, long the, time that, ago. That jump in such a short time frame. Uh, so that's a big deal. And then we had new home sales today. And I guess you see it in that num those numbers. 603,000 new home sales. Uh, that's better than the consensus of 580,000, but that's below last month. 685,000. So it's starting to really slow uh, the growth in new home sales here, the high Maybe mortgage rates. Maybe that's good for people like me. I mean, I'm not Im imminently looking to purchase a home, <laughs> but I know some people that are, and they're just waiting for the market to turn enough yeah, where, it I know. where it makes sense again. All right, let's talk to somebody who uh, does this for a living, uh, Erica Edelberg. She's a mortgage-backed security strategist for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Erica, what do you make of that, that new home sales data we got today? How did you read it? Well, you know, it looks like we're continuing. I think a lot of people 
didn't expect last month's little surge to last because mortgage rates are going up. And if anything, the new home sales number is probably still a lagging indicator because rates have risen a lot this month as well. Um, overall, we're down around 18% year over year, and I think that's not to be unexpected. At the same time, we are seeing new homes under construction going up. So um, there's a continued kind of stabilization in prices and new home sales, but that may not last as well. And let's talk about uh, what U.S. mortgage rates are doing. I uh, have to imagine that's trickling through into some of that new home sales data. U.S. mortgage rates topping 7 percent. That's the contract rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage. What's the ceiling here? It seems like it's lifted every single week. You know, it's, it's really quite related, obviously, to where treasuries are going. And I know that our economics and our treasury team both expect that treasuries should be leveling out soon because even though we do expect short rates to continue to have to rise to fight inflation, we think the economy will start to slow in the response, and therefore that will start putting a limit on how high treasury yields will get. And mortgage spreads are also very wide to treasuries right now. We actually think they're probably wider than fundamentals suggest. I think there's just a lot of digestion going on as the Fed pulls out of the market, but even taking into account kind of you know where we think the Fed holdings as a percentage of the market will be, uh, we think spreads are probably a little wide. So we're seeing some strong buying just in the past couple of days by mortgage investors who say spreads are wide enough. Um, so, you know, presuming the money and the dry powder is there to kind of stabilize the mortgage market, it it's, looks promising, at least in the last, in, in the most recent uh, trading sessions. That's kind of where I wanted to go, uh, Erica, in kind of the market you cover, the MBS market. I'm looking at the Bloomberg US MBS index total return and year-to-date, minus 15.3%. And don't worry, you have lots of company in that type of performance across the fixed income specter, uh, sec segment. Do your clients you talk to, are, are any of them saying, boy, this is, A, it's historic in terms of underperformance, and B, it can't get that much worse. Maybe now's the time? Um, yeah, well, I definitely have a lot of clients talking to me and saying, you know, at what point are spreads wide enough? And of course, I can't fully answer that question because there's always unknowns and uh, we're not really allowed to do that. But I will say that when we run regressions and look at what spreads are relative to fundamental economic variables, as well as the housing market variables, and even you know our expectations for Fed holdings as a percentage of the index, spreads look wide. Now, what, one of the things that's keeping spreads wide is the fact that volatility both in terms of returns, so you know, from a fear versus greed standpoint, um, but also just in terms of how it affects mortgage valuations, because there is negative convexity in the mortgage uh, sector inherently. So high levels of spread volatility actually do reduce the value of the mortgage overall, fundamentally. But that being said, even taking those into account, spreads look wider than they should, wider than our models think they should. So then it just becomes a matter of who who can fill the Fed's um, void as as they step out of the market? Right. Well, Erica, that's what I wanted to ask you. How much of that uh, maybe unjustified spread wideness can we just blame on the Fed pulling back from the market? I think we can blame the bulk of it on that, but we also can blame the high volatility overall in the market and uncertainty about the direction of rates and the magnitude of Fed 
uh, tightening policies, which is related to all the unknowns about inflation. So, you know, it's not as, as you guys said, it's it's not only mortgages that are underperforming. Corporates underperform, obviously equities have underperformed. So it's a global asset class um, risk off phenomena. But at the same time, I will add the interesting fact that as of this month, mortgages in an excess return basis, which is considering hedge returns, are actually the worst performing sector in the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. Oof. So we, we've taken that dubious crown. It had been <laughs> corporates until September. So, you know, that also points to the fact that mortgage, mortgage uh, cheapening may be overdone even relative to the other uh, risk products. 30 seconds, Erica. What's the credit risk for mortgages right now? been getting that question a lot. My opinion is it's very low. Lending standards are very high, and the amount of equity most homeowners have in their homes is very strong. So uh, not a concern for me at this point, but obviously we'll be looking for any signs pointing in the other direction. All right. Great, great stuff. I'm so glad we have somebody like Erica Edelberg with us because the only thing I know about the mortgage-backed securities market is that what I learned in the great financial crisis. I'm probably like everybody else there, which is, boy, we had to get smart quickly on that. And it's a very complex business. But uh, fortunately, we have pros like Erica Edelberg, mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Yes, we have an MBS strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence because it's a huge market. Uh, it touches pretty much everybody out there, the housing market. Uh, and it is certainly interest rate sensitive, to say the least. And we're seeing that in the performance. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As John was just mentioning, some disappointing tech numbers last evening. More to come uh, reports uh, after the close today. Weighing on the market here, but we've uh, seen the S&P and Dow turn positive. So go figure. Maybe this market wants to move a little higher. We check in with somebody who does this stuff for a living, Quincy Crosby, chief global strategist at LPL Financial. as a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ. You can put LPLA, the ticker, into your Bloomberg Terminal and check that out. Uh, Quincy, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of this market? Bloomberg News is out reporting on, on a Goldman Sachs call. Goldman Sachs says U.S. equity bottom conditions are not there yet. Do you agree with that or how do you think about it? Well, you know, statistically, it's probably not in. You, what you now have is the market transitioning from, you know, concerns over inflation to recession. I mean, you, you've seen much made of the Three months uh, Treasury note inverting with the 10-year has a pretty pretty strong uh, track record. In fact, excellent track record uh, predicting a recession. The question will be what kind of recession, and that is going to affect how the market reacts. Because you know, if it, if market starts uh, discounting uh, and, and concerns over over earnings, uh, that's going to matter for uh, whether or not we've reached the bottom. 
Quincy, I want to get your thoughts on the concept of bad news being good news. As we, you know, mm -hmm. continue this conversation about earnings, that mantra is typically applied to economic data. But I mean, many have made the case that when you see lower ad revenue, especially for some of these tech companies, that's a read on the economy. That's a read of cooling demand. Maybe that's good news in the eyes of the Federal Reserve. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the market has been taking um, the data and then, you know, filtering it through the perspective from the Fed. And it's exactly that. The bad news is, is good news because what the market is hoping for is that the Fed begins a transition. I mean, I know most want the Fed to stop or to pause. But, you know, most likely it'll be a transition to a lower rate and less uh, hawkish rhetoric as it moves towards the uh, towards the terminal rate. But that's what the market wants. And the market understands that the more the Fed sees the economy slowing, uh, especially because it's become much more embedded in, in the broader economy, the labor market, for example, then the Fed understands its campaign is working. So that's why you're right. Bad news is good news. Good news at this point <laughs> is bad news. So, uh, Quincy, last night Microsoft, like many other companies, uh, called out uh, the stronger U.S. dollar as, as a headwind and impacting their reported results. Mm -hmm. As a professional investor, Quincy, do you look past, you know, the swings in currencies and try to focus more on the underlying business? Or do you have to take the reported numbers as they are? How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you, you know, you're, you're always looking at guidance. You've heard that over and over again, that when we're going through the earnings season, we're listening to the guidance. And you could see a number of analysts, especially Microsoft, have said, hey, this is, this is a buying opportunity. The stronger dollar has been an important headwind. There's no doubt about it, particularly amid a backdrop of, of a weaker demand as the global economy slows down. But that is going to change. I mean, that you, you're looking ahead three months. And expectations are that the dollar will have weakened because the Fed eases off. And that is very helpful for, um, for the, uh, you know, the uh, global uh, footprint for a good portion of the S&P 500, the multinationals. So there's no doubt about it. Uh, the guidance is crucial. It isn't as if Microsoft came in with a, you know, terrible guidance, the end of the earth guidance. No, it wasn't that at all. But it missed in terms of the guidance, and that should change. Similarly, we're waiting tonight to hear from Apple. And Apple, you know, has yep. a major footprint globally. The dollar is going to matter. And so, Quincy, put this all into a portfolio for us. What's your highest conviction position at the moment? Well, right now, we're, we tend to be more conservative at this point, and we like health care. And energy has been uh, a top performer. Health care is moving in that direction. It has moved in that direction, including its riskier uh, uh, compatriot, uh, which is biotech, all moving uh, all moving. Uh, a nice, nice uh, gains for the advisors. Uh, another thing that we're looking at, and that's important, and that is a move in um, uh, industrials, it, like green shoots. A lot of that has to do with the defense component of industrials, the defense stocks. Very important for um, for the overall industrials. They're moving inch by inch higher. The other thing that we're looking at is the bond market. We've been saying for some time now. The bond market has come back and offering uh, investors 
a return, a return that they haven't seen in a long time, and to take advantage of that. The short duration, we're moving a little bit longer, but investment grade, short duration, again, moving a little bit longer. This is going to help until the market realizes that the rates are going to come down as recession fears are introduced, and then, obviously, the rates will start to pull back. All right, Quincy, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, always love getting your perspective there. Quincy Crosby, Chief Global Strategist for LPL Financial, NASDAQ-traded company LPLA uh, is the ticker symbol there. Uh, just talking about earnings and kind of how the market's digesting those earnings. And, you know, when I was an analyst, uh, I would tend to try to look through some of the fluctuations uh, on FX and try to look at the underlying business to say, hey, how, how are things going? But again, it can have uh, big moves in the, in the currencies, can have big moves on some of these multinational uh, companies. And we're really seeing it, uh, you know, in a big way this quarter. Again, Microsoft last night, Apple, uh, as Quincy was mentioning, a huge global company uh, after the close tonight, along with uh, Facebook slash Meta. Let's get right to our next guest, Brian Whalen. He's a co-CIO and generalist portfolio manager at TCW Fixed Income Group. Uh, he went to some college in Connecticut that's best known for its pizza. But what really gets my attention, he was a former VP at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette. And for those that don't know, that was one of the premier firms on the street before Credit Suisse bought it and kind of destroyed it. Uh, but what's really good about the DLJ people is they trained some of the best analysts on Wall Street. So keep that in mind. Brian, I got double-digit declines everywhere I look in the fixed income space. People are telling me this has never happened before. So, of course, I want to jump in with both feet and start buying everything. What do you think of my strategy? Uh, I, th I like it. You had me at the intro, and now, and now you've got me with the uh, you know, support for the bond market. Yeah. Completely agree. Uh, we're at such a different place right now. I mean, you know, we started the year, the 10 years at 1.5%. You know, you look at your, your kind of standard bond fund today, you're looking at a yield of somewhere between 55 and 6%. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of opportunities around not only just the yield, but you know the potential opportunities you can get in credit. Not to say there won't be more, um, but it's a different conversation about the bond market today. Not only get the yield, you know, but there's a strong argument to be uh, to be made that you know bonds can be what they're supposed to be in your portfolio, which is a diversifier versus other assets like equities. It's amazing to me how quickly uh, Tina went away. There is yeah. no alternative. Now it almost feels like there's too many alternatives. There's so much opportunity, uh, so many juicy yields in the bond market. I mean, where do you see the most opportunity at this point? Yeah, good question. I, you know, for, for us, this first, you know, the first 10 months of the year, uh, it's been a kind of, we've called it a, a high quality sell-off, you know. So where have you seen most of the repricing? You've seen it, obviously, in treasury rates. We just talked about that. Uh, and then other higher quality, larger parts of the bond market, like agency mortgage-backed securities, like investment-grade corporate bonds, you know, those have kind of repriced the most and looked the most attractive at this point. But, you know, if our outlook is right, and it's, you know, it seems to be coming more consensus, which is that we're, we're clearly heading into a, a deep slowdown and recession, you're probably going to want to keep some powder dry for credit opportunities, meaning that, you know, areas of the bond market like leverage finance, you know, high-yield leverage loans, parts of the bond market where you're exposed to kind of lower quality uh, types of borrowers in the commercial real estate area or the residential mortgage area, you're going to want to keep that powder dry because, you know, those parts of the market really have not repriced. The, the spreads or the prices you see in those parts of the market are not reflective of a recession. And so that's, you know, with regards to our strategies, we've, you know, we've jumped with both feet into the former, into the kind of higher quality parts of the market. 
um, but still being cautious uh, on the lower quality parts. So, you know, I, I spent a couple of years early in my career at the Chase Manhattan Bank, so I, doing credit analysis. So I've got some chops there. I'm not just an equity, simple equity guy. But my question is, you know, I'm concerned if we go into this recession about credit quality. Um, so you're suggesting that is, in fact, a risk, and that is suggestive of maybe focusing on quality right now as opposed to maybe trying to grab for some extra yield? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, when we look at, let's look at like corporate balance sheets, you know, they're actually not as levered as we saw them in late 2019. And part of that is, you know, it's the upside of inflation, right? You know, debt is a nominal problem. Uh, and so when you have inflation uh, and debt stays relatively constant, your ability to service that debt actually looks, it looks fairly healthy right now. Uh, it doesn't look bad. That said, if we enter a recession, There'll certainly be some, you know, some, uh, you know, some things that go bang in the financial markets. Uh, that will dry up liquidity, and you will see that reflected in wider spreads, higher yields in those parts of the corporate bond market. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see defaults, the same types of default levels that we saw in the great financial crisis or you know during the kind of the 2001-2002 tech bubble burst. But there could be a period of time, and it could last, you know, months where you know the high yield market is priced like that. And now, and now that would be a buying opportunity because you could get prices reflective of a high default cycle. But in reality, over the ensuing two, three years, you may not get, or most likely will not get, those types of peak default rates, and that will lead to, to very good returns. Brian, let's wrap the Fed into this as we count down to next week's meeting. I'm going to ask you a version of a question I'm obsessed with this morning, which the idea that bad news is good news. You have, you know, signs of cooling economic data. And I know you're a credit guy, but you look at what we're seeing in the corporate earnings results, uh, the impact of a higher dollar, slowing uh, ad demands. When you add all that together, what do you think it means for the Fed? And what do you think that means for the fixed income universe at large? I think the think that we think the Fed's going to go as far as the the market allows them. Meaning that you know if this you know it's been fairly surprisingly orderly kind of year to date. Like we haven't really I mentioned those bangs in the financial market. We haven't seen them. So you know the Fed's going to get they're going to try to get well north of four percent. You know the market's got it priced in somewhere between a four and a half and a five percent funds rate. You know what might stop them from getting there is something that goes you know really goes bang. Um, it's kind of the equivalent or even larger of that kind of UK pension LDI problem, you know, here in the States. Yep. You know, that may cause them to kind of stop. Uh, or, you know, let's say, you know, unemployment jumping up surprisingly uh, or a little more quickly, you know, than the market's anticipating. But long story short, right. the modern market right now is allowing them to, you know, is kind of pricing and allowing them to get north of yep. 4.5%. And if they're giving it to them, they're going to take it. All right. Good stuff. As always, uh, Brian Whelan, co-CIO and generalist portfolio manager, TCW Fixed Income Group. They manage like $225 billion. How do you even do that? Looking at uh, Boeing today, the stock's down about 2.5%. They reported some numbers. I kind of went through it. It kind of looked like a mixed bag. Revenue, uh, EPS missed estimates on the one hand. On the other hand, they had a ton of free cash flow. And I know that's what analysts and uh, investors for Boeing focus on a lot. So let's break it down with George Ferguson. He's a senior aerospace defense and airline analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Has been doing this stuff uh, for decades. And of course, the highlight of his life is he's a proud graduate of the Penn State University. Uh, George, kind of a mixed bag there for Boeing. What did you take away from it? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, the, the takeaway was that even though cash was, cash and global services, I think, were the two standouts in the quarter and a really ugly, muddy quarter. 
um, cash wasn't as good as uh, as it looked. You know, the, the cash generation was largely driven by uh, you know a, a tax refund and then um, some prepayments on airplanes and actually accounts receivable uh, going up, which I think is has a lot to do with the defense businesses that they took charges on, but there's some other monies in there. So, you know, I, when, when I look at cash flow, I like core cash flow. I like you, know, you generate it from operations. You don't generate it from working account changes and tax refunds. That was just, uh, it's just not, not, not good. Just doesn't, not good. <laughs> not good. Uh, let's, let's move from cash flow and talk about the 737 delivery goal cut again uh it reduced its forecast for deliveries uh to about 375 for this year again just another cut there how surprising was this or are you pretty used to seeing these cuts at this point yeah i think we are unfortunately getting used to seeing these cuts and you know the noise we heard about next year wasn't good either uh and i think that's really the challenge right i think um Build rates have to be higher than, uh, you know, they're not even achieving the 31 they, they, they say is their stated rate. Um, but I think they even have to get above 31 to keep the company healthy, to generate cash, to absorb all that overhead, and to keep their supplier base uh, in decent shape. And I think everyone is scratching their heads about this, hey, it's the engine makers that uh, can't get us engines, uh, you know, that the Boeing management kept going through. A number of analysts on the call questioned that, you know, multiple times. And, um, you know, when we look at Airbus, they're building eight to ten more airplanes a month, and they're getting engines. So hmm. what's what's the difference, right? What, what's going on? <laughs> so I guess, you know, the, one of the issues is the 787, the Dreamliner, which is one of my favorite aircrafts in the sky, Um How's that doing? Because I know it's not just a 737 that we have to worry about, but I know there's some issues with the 787 as well. Yeah, so the 787, you know, they, they've got the FAA to sign off on, on the fix on those, and they're starting to move them out of inventory, which is, you know, that's, a, that's absolutely a positive story. The challenge is that the 787 doesn't make much uh, margin, so, you know, the contribution to profit isn't, isn't large, but there's a lot of money in inventory that, I think you know Boeing needs that cash needs to needs to get it into the into the balance sheet, ship those airplanes, and that's going to give them some comfort going forward. Um, you know, so I mean, again, I think seven eight seven an improving story, but just not not a lot of profitability in that program. And so when you think about Boeing and uh, the different struggles that the company is dealing with, supply chain issues, labor shortages, what do you think is the biz- biggest hurdle uh, that the C suite is talking about right now? Uh, you know, I think that um, I, I, I'm not going to limit it to one. Sorry, I'm going to go for two. First, I think <laughs> go for probably, it. they should be talking every single day again about what it's going to take to get 737 max production up uh, and sustained at a higher level so they can generate profits. And they should be talking each and every – and pa- actually, part of that discussion is going to be they've got to be going to the White House and trying to figure out what is going on with China. China is either going to open or not open, and if it's not going to open for them, they got to go sell those airplanes that they've already built and get that cash, again, in, into their coffers. And the second thing is that defense business. That defense business has rolled over. Now we're looking at 2023 where we're not going to generate cash in that business. That was, you know, That is supposed to be one of the stabilizing factors at this company, and now it's and you know now it's not performing for them and they've got to get into that defense business 
get these charges behind them, get that supply chain right size, even potentially go to Congress and talk about adjusting some of these fixed price uh, contracts because it's not just Boeing that's losing money on fixed price contracts. Everybody's having a problem with it. They got to work that issue hard. That's an important part of this business. Uh, George, you mentioned China. What is the state of uh, Boeing's relationship with China? Can they, in fact, are they allowed to sell? Is China just not buying? What's going on? So China has approved the MAX to fly in the country, but they are not taking deliveries of the airplanes. And so uh, of 737 MAXs that have been built and are sitting on the tarmac out, in the, you know, out at different Boeing facilities around the world. So as near as we can tell, this looks like uh, part of a, you know, part of a U.S.-China trade fight that Boeing's kind of stuck in the middle of. Um, and there's 138 airplanes waiting to be delivered into China. And, it, you know, what, part of what's boosting Airbus's deliveries is the fact that they're still delivering into China. Um, and that's giving them 8 to 10 a month. Wow. Again, so Boeing's got to go to the White House, I think, and start getting this figured out. Like, where are we in, in relations with China on trade? Interesting. All right, let's switch gears just real quickly to the airlines. What's a top-line story? What's the story here for the airlines? It, we know like consumers, they came back. Maybe they paused a little bit. Is, it, where are we in terms of demand there on the, for the airlines? Yeah, I mean, it, it, demand has continued to improve, and revenues uh, have looked very good during earnings season. Costs are still elevated. They're not getting 2019 levels of profitability. 2019 wasn't the top tick. 2016 was the top tick. So while, they, while managements tell you, hey, it's great, revenues are coming in, we think there's a huge amount of demand for air travel, there clearly is. But the question is, why can't they get us back to margins that look like 2019? It's labor costs. It's fuel costs. So my sense is there's still some weakness at the low end of leisure, and business isn't back fully. So business, we think, is about 75% back. And the low end of leisure, I think, is going to struggle with higher inflation, and especially because we go into uh, you know economic slowdown, whatever you think is coming just over the hill, that's going to be the challenge for them. All right, good stuff. George Ferguson, he covers uh, the airlines, he covers the aerospace and defense companies, all tied in, of course, George Ferguson, senior aerospace and defense analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, calling in from our Princeton office. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.